0: Welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. This week is episode number 13, and we're gonna dive into safety for a solo hunter. We're gonna cover things like bear safety, land nav, first aid kits, water purification, and a whole slew of other topics related to how to stay safe in the mountains when you're by yourself. As always, deeply appreciate any likes, comments, shares, and subscribes on any of your podcasting platforms of choice and I wanted to make a quick note because I cover so many different things in this podcast it's evident when you go on YouTube but it's not so evident uh, when you listen to the audio version I timestamp the podcast which doesn't carry over unfortunately to the audio version but I list in the show notes the times when I talk about all the different topics. so if there's just one or two segments of the podcast that are, that interest you and you don't want to listen to the rest just go to that show notes section. Look for the sections that interest you, and then you need to skip ahead to those parts, and you don't need to listen to the rest. So we're going to dive right into it this week because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. Training and diet is just cruising on. Training is going phenomenal for the hunt. Um, My conditioning is feeling great. I never thought I would be this conditioned at 260 pounds. I feel quite good going up the hill with a 50-pound pack on my back. Diet's good. My coach just dropped my carbs again, so now I'm down to 200 grams cooked weight of carbs in most of my meals, and then on my off-training days, I'm still at 150 grams cooked weight in most of my meals. And instead of spending an extensive amount of time talking about my own training and my own diet, what I'd almost want, I'd like to start a new section of the podcast or a slight pivot to the current training and diet section And I'd like to hear from you guys, because I was thinking what we could do is you could get in touch with me and tell me what your particular goals are. Are you trying to get stronger, faster, lose fat, build muscle? And then what I could do is I could do either just little sections of one-off episodes, or I could actually do a series dedicated to a particular set of goals. And I was even thinking maybe checking in with a couple listeners from time to time and seeing how their progress Is going. So, what I would like you to do if this interests you in any way, shape, or form, or you want some help with your training or or nutritional goals, send me an email, j at mindfulhunter.com, or DM me on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. Let me know what you're working towards and we'll see if we can get some content into the podcast that's a little more practical for you as the listener. Now for the gear corner this week, I wanna talk about a piece of, another piece of camera gear. This is called the cotton carrier. So previously I've been a big proponent of the Peak Designs carrier clip system. Essentially what that item does is it allows you to holster your camera on the shoulder strap of your backpack. And it is far and away the best way to carry a camera in the backcountry and still give you access to it to shoot regularly. Otherwise, you stuff it in your backpack. You're taking your backpack off every time you want to shoot something. It's a fucking waste of time. So I've been using this system for almost four years now. Absolutely love it. However, there's one severe drawback you can only have one tripod adapter on the base plate of your camera at a time. So anytime that I want to put my camera onto my tripod to either take a long exposure photo or do a panning video shot or even set it up and film myself or even to take trophy shots once you've killed an animal, I have to have the tools to take the one adapter plate off and put the other adapter plate on. And the one thing I've learned is even though that seems like an easy thing to do, and it's not a difficult thing to do, any point of friction that gets in the way of the creative process is it, it should be removed so you can make creating as easy as possible for you. Because I, I, plenty of times I've thought, oh, it'd be nice to get a tripod shot of whatever. And then I think about switching it and I'm like, ah, fuck it, it's not worth it. I'll just do it handheld. I get maybe 80% of the quality that I could. And it's because that point of friction is there. So, Cotton Carrier, which is a very similar system to Peak Designs in that it mounts on your shoulder strap and it allows you to holster your camera right on your chest. Now, what they have done is they've come out with a secondary uh, plate that goes on the base plate of your camera and it allows you to attach two tripod adapter plates at the same time. So, you can have one in the middle of your camera, use it for the Cotton Carrier and get it on and off of your chest. And then over to the side, you mount the tripod adapter plate for your actual tripod. And then while leaving everything attached, you can take it right off of your chest and stick it right onto your tripod. Uh, It was the guy named Stephen Drake that turned me onto this. I was watching one of his vlogs and I'm going to get back to him in a minute, actually. But it blew my mind. I've been looking for a solution to this system. I was even going to get two things like welded together. And I was trying to think of how I could fab something up that would accomplish. Like this has been a big deal that I've been wrestling us with for a while. And so to find such an innovative solution, I'm super excited to try it out. The goat hunt, which is coming up in 10 days, fucking crazy, um, will be the first time that I'm going to get to try this out. So I'll do a more thorough review once I, get a chance to do that. The cotton carrier itself, I think costs about 80 bucks. And then the adapter plate is another 40 bucks. So it's like $120 solution. Which seems a bit pricey, but for, for the versatility that it gives you, I think it's well worth the investment. All right. Current events for the week. This might be a little bit controversial, what I'm about to, to talk about. And I will say that I haven't fully made up my mind on this issue. So take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Meat eater, just purchase Phelps Game Calls. Now, this is at least the third or fourth company in this kind of family of company that's owned by the kind of parent organization that owns Meat Eater, First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps. And I'm just going to say I'm not a fan of this. They These used to be like cottage companies or like boutique companies small companies that specialized in like one or two products. And for my own shopping, that tends to be the type of companies that I buy from. I appreciate smaller family owned companies. I like people who specialize in one thing. Um, And when I see one company buying up all of these other companies, And I will be completely honest here too. I am not a big fan of the severe politics of the organization that owns all these companies. I'm not going to dive into it right now, but we can get into this conversation later on. But if you look at the funding sources for some of the not-for-profits that this particular organization supports, it's super sketchy. Like they're taking money from the same people who advocated for the grizzly bear ban in British Columbia. And I cannot and will not support an organization that's willing to take one dime from an organization that also funded the move to ban grizzly bear hunting in Canada. And then that same not-for-profit didn't even stand up to the, you know, and it's supposed to be a not-for-profit that stands for, you know, individuals hunting rights and access. And they did nothing when it came to the grizzly bear ban precisely because they were taking money from the same lobbying group that was funding the ban itself. Like I said, I don't want to get too deep into this because I think it's an, it's a topic deep enough for an entire episode, but that type of activity is this type of activity that's being supported by the organization that now owns all of these companies I don't I like meat eater. I still love listening to the podcast. I love watching the TV show. I like Steve Renella from what I can tell. He's a he's a good guy. So I don't want this to come across as me like bashing the meat eater organization. I'm not. I think they do good things. There's a lot of it that doesn't vibe with me personally, and that's okay. It doesn't it doesn't have to. It just concerns me that there's these really great smaller organizations that now are getting bought up by a larger organization and it's like it's business 101. The more mouths to feed at the table, the more profit one must make. So either you got to cut costs, you got to increase prices, or you got to lower the quality of whatever it is you're building. I don't see how you can you know, continue to turn a profit for more people otherwise. I'm a business consultant for a living. So if somebody asked me This does make a sound strategy for business growth. However, because I'm particularly passionate about some of these brands and some of these products, I find myself at kind of a crossroads because even though I see the business sense in it, the other side of me is just kind of really opposed to this. So like I said at the beginning, I'm not 100% set in how I feel about this but I think it's something really interesting to keep an eye on moving forward. Like, do we see certain trends coming from these companies that now are all owned by this one single organization? And do those trends align with our own personal values as a hunter? Anyways, food for thought. I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. I'm happy to admit maybe my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's gonna be great. Maybe it means more people will get access to really cool products. If you guys have some educated opinions, drop some comments below or shoot me an email. I'd love to carry on the conversation, you know, outside of the podcast. All right, time for a new section. Um, I wanted to do something to kind of give back to the community or to kind of support other content creators. So we're going to have a creator of the week section. And I'm just going to give like a quick shout out to somebody that I've been enjoying their content, you know, over the past little while. I already mentioned his name once. Uh, it's Stephen Drake. He's been a photographer for a long time. He now has his own YouTube channel. He has for the last few years, but it's growing pretty steadily as of late. He does these vlogs on a on a regular basis. And the cool part about Stephen is that because he professionally takes hunting photos, you get to see some behind-the-scenes footage. As a content creator myself, the quality of his vlogs, like... They're like one of those things you watch and it's like, okay, am I inspired or do I want to quit? Because I feel like the content I make is still so far from the quality of the content he makes. I tend to get more, it's like I'm half kidding. I like seeing people who can kick my ass because that fires me up and I want to I wanna get up to that level that, that he's at. But it's just that good that you just take a second and you're like, fuck man, I really have a long way to go. Uh, in my own content creation, I'm a good storyteller, but I don't, you know, the quality of the cinematography and the editing in particular in his stuff is just outstanding. So you can find him on Instagram, st- Steven Drake Photo with a V, Steve V E N, uh, Drake Photo on Instagram. And I'm sure if you go there, there's links to all of his other work, um, his YouTube channel and all the rest of that stuff. Um, most of you guys have probably already heard of him. It's not like this is some like under the radar guy. He's been around for a long time. He's really well known, but, I don't know how many people realize that he kinda had his own YouTube channel where he's putting out regular content on a on a regular basis. So I think he's well worth the follow and and subscribing to him on, on YouTube. He does tons, very similar to some of the stuff I do, but his stuff is like shorter and more succinct. And he doesn't go on the rambling rants that I tend to go on, but he'll do like six takeaways from a sheep hunt or five takeaways from a goat hunt. And it's like really super helpful kind of tactical advice from a guy with a shitload of real world experience. All right, let's dive into the main topic, safety while solo hunting. So I threw this out on my IG. I got a ton of really great questions. I think this was the most responded to question I've ever put up on my Instagram. And one of the first questions came from a good buddy of mine. And I think he was like trying to be a bit sarcastic, but it turned out to actually be a really good question. And he said, why would anyone go hunting by themselves? And I was going to give some snarky remark. And then I got thinking about like, well, why would anybody go hunting by themselves? Like it makes perfect sense. It would be safer. It would be easier. There's a lot of really good reasons why you would go hunt with other people. So I think This podcast might not be for everybody. You might not be interested in solo hunting. I will say all the safety tips I'm going to get into are equally applicable when you're hunting as a group. It's just a little more important that you pre-plan some things when you're going solo because you don't have that kind of safety net of having other people around if something happens to you. But I can talk a little bit about why I solo hunt. I prefer the challenge. I like the kind of psychological battle of being alone for long periods of time. I enjoy that kind of falling into myself sensation that you get. Like the longer you're in the mountains by yourself, the kind of deeper into yourself you tend to get. And it's a really interesting place to kind of just let yourself slide into. Um, Also with a lot of the hunts I do, I just don't know anybody who has the time to come with me or the inclination you know, I've tried a couple people and they, after going hunting with me once, they don't tend to want to come back. Maybe I'm a dick. Maybe the hunt is a little bit too difficult. I don't know. Everybody's got their own version of, of what a great hunt is for them. Uh, for me, I also like being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't like having to compromise. So If I think it's worth going to look over the next hill, I'm just going to go look over the next hill. If I want to sit a particular water, I'm going to sit that water. And when you go by yourself, you can just do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I think there's some big upsides to that. I'm going to do some, this kind of like a podcast on the road when I do the goat hunt. And I'm going to talk about my own personal reasons for solo hunting a little deeper because I'm going on a 16 hour drive and it kind of lends itself to a little more kind of introspective discussion. But I just wanted to give a a nod to his question, why would anybody go hunting alone? Because after kind of first glance, I do think that's a valid question. And I think you can land on either side of that question. No one's any more badass for solo hunting or not solo hunting. And it's just, it's just another choice. It's like, maybe you like whitetail hunting from a tree stand. Maybe you like calling in elk in the rut. Maybe you like hunting sheep in August. I don't give a shit. If you like hunting and you're getting out there and getting after it, then I support whatever you, you're doing. I tend to focus more on solo hunting. So there's a little bit of a, a kind of bent to that in this podcast, because it's just what I know more about. After the um, <laughs> the comment about why would anybody go solo hunting? The question that came up, like overwhelmingly more than anything else was bears. Like I think out of 30 questions, 15 of them had something to do with bears. So before we talk about anything else, I'm going to get the bear shit out of the way because it's clearly something that's very important to people. And I don't think it's something that warrants staying at home or being overly afraid. My personal experience with bears, like I've mentioned before, I was a forestry engineer for 15 years in British Columbia. I have had hundreds of encounters with black bears from you know a couple hundred yards away to 20 yards away I've had at least 30 or 40 sub 30 yard encounters with black bear in the last 15 to 20 years between planting and engineering in British Columbia and Alberta we're going to talk about that later on but I know and I understand black bears I've been around grizzly bears a few times I've been within 100 yards of a grizzly a couple times both times I had a rifle with me um I do not have extensive grizzly bear experience. I've been in grizzly bears areas extensively, but I've had maybe like literally like a handful of run-ins with grizzly bears. So I'll share what I can on that topic, but it's certainly not one I'm an expert on. Quick story. We were planting, uh, Right around Hudson's Hope, this has got to be like 20 years ago, and I brought my brother with me, my little brother, and it was his first year tree planting, and he got bluff charged by a grizzly, a uh, sow with cubs, him and his and his planting partner, this girl named Kezia, and uh, I didn't get to see it. I guess she ran at them maybe like three to four times. She would huff and clack her teeth sprint in 10, 15 yards, hold up five to 10 yards away, paw the ground, snort back up and kind of rinse and repeat. And he said something that stuck with me about the way that it affected him psychologically. He said, I looked at the ground and I couldn't move the entire time. And it's like, I've never really felt that, but the way he described it, I could, I could imagine what it felt like, like it was just a terror of of such proportion that it just shut you down psychologically. Like when you think about the way your body reacts to fight or flight situations and your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, it makes a lot of sense that under extreme stress, your body, one potential reaction is just to shut down and he said, I was just trying to make myself as small as possible. Um, and he was shook up bad. Like it was no joke. It scared the shit out of him. And he was fucked up for a little while. Like didn't want to plant by himself for a bit. Didn't want to go to the back of pieces alone for a bit. Like, and I totally understand all of this shit. Um, it would have been absolutely terrifying. So grizzly bears are definitely not something we want to take lightly. Now, One note I want to make before we dive into the actual tactics here is that I take some of the stuff that I do in the woods for granted because I've spent so much time in them. I'll share some stories of bad decisions that I've made. I definitely take a few too many risks likely from an objective perspective when I'm in the mountains because there's probably an element of complacency there, which I'm trying to keep an eye on. And it's something in the forefront of my mind with this goat hunt coming up. I'm really dialing up the safety on this hunt just because of the, the terrain and the circumstances and the time of year and all that kind of all that kind of stuff. But I do want to say for the more experienced guys in the crowd, let's not let our confidence lead us to making bad decisions. So I think it's good to feel good confident and secure out in the mountains. But I think it can also lead to a sense of complacency and bad decisions. Sometimes the newer guys are almost safer. So I'm going to do my best to lay out, you know, clear suggestions about what to do to stay safe. But there might be things that I don't even think of or things that I just glance past because again, I I, I just having done it so long, I just... I don't think of it with that beginner mindset. So if I miss something completely, or if I misstate something, get in touch. I'm happy to like go over it in more detail on the next podcast. Okay. Back to bears. First things first, know your area, do research, whether that's forums, phoning people, you know, looking on the ministry website, whatever, whatever. Find out what type of bears are in your area, the density of the populations, what you need to worry about. Have there been attacks in that area? Is this a highly volatile area? Is it not a highly volatile area? Black bear only? Is there grizzlies? Are there only grizzlies? Um, Are you going to be near particularly sensitive areas that you need to be aware of? So first things first do your research and understand the types of animals that are going to be in the area that you're going into. Next, in Canada, carry bear spray. This is one of those things where like, do what I say, not what I do. I didn't carry bear spray for years. To be quite honest with you, I have seen bear spray hurt more people than I've seen it help. The amount of times somebody stepped on a can of bear spray with a cork or driven over one with a truck or thrown it into the tote at the end of the day and then put put uh something in there like a stapler or a hammer and had the handle crack open the like dozens of times I've either been there or heard about it that night about bear spray going off unexpectedly. And partially due to that, I just never carried it for years. Didn't want anything to do with it. Obviously, if you worked for me in the woods, you were welcome to bring it, but I didn't really like force it on people and I didn't really overly encourage it. Again, because I encouraged more like awareness, like instead of having a device that's gonna protect myself once I get into a situation, how about we try and think about things that will keep us out of the situation? I will say I I have rethought that particular strategy. I do now carry bear spray, especially when I'm by myself. And especially when I'm on a bow hunting trip, um, in Canada, you're not allowed to carry a sidearm except under extremely limited circumstances. Like when you get an authorization to carry, but like the the amount of people who actually qualify for one of those is so small that there's really no point in even talking about it for all intents and purposes. You cannot carry a sidearm in the mountains in British Columbia. So bear spray is the only thing you have when you're on a bow hunt. And we do have lots of areas where there's grizzly, where you would want to go bow hunting other species. So highly recommend bear spray. If you're in, this, in the States, I would recommend getting a sidearm. A 10 mil seems to be the most popular for grizzly country. I'm not a big gun guy, so, but that's just like guides I know and buddies I know who live down the States. That seems to be the most popular weapon of choice. Always hang your food at night. This can be a pain in the ass because you might want to eat something a little bit later in your tent. You don't want to get out of your sleeping bag once it's cold and all the rest. But this is one of those things where the effort is going to be worth it. So I always bring all my food in a dry bag and individual gallon Ziploc bags per day. And at the last thing I do every night is hang my, my food, you know, a good, I don't know, at least 50, 60 yards from camp. Um, Cause then if he does come towards camp, I'm almost hoping he smells the food and it takes him away from camp. That's a practice that I would strongly encourage everyone to get into. Um, I have used electric bear fences in plant camps. Before, I need to investigate some backcountry options because I've heard of some really cool electric fences that you can like throw up with a handful of AA batteries and just wrap it around your tent or like a smaller circumference area that are really attractive for me when you're in those like particularly troublesome backcountry areas. So that's something that I'm going to be looking into, especially where I'm going sheep hunting solo this summer. It's something I'm concerned about. So I will look into that and I'll update you guys when I have more details. So let's talk about actual tactics. If we do get into a scuffle of some kind, when it comes to a black bear, my strong recommendation, big and tall as you can possibly get. And as loud as you can possibly get. Every time we were tree planting that we had problems with black bears, the standard procedure was to get on top of a stump raise both your arms up in the air with your planting shovel in one hand so you appeared as large a mass as possible, and then just start shouting, hey bear, yo bear, at the bear. Every time I've done that, it's worked. Now, if the bear is, let's say, more than 100 or 150 yards away, and it looks mildly curious, but maybe it's going on its way with a black bear, Just let it go on its way. Not until it starts to move directly towards you do you want to draw any extra attention to yourself. Now, simply because maybe he doesn't even give a shit that you're there. That happens all the time. They just look over, see you, and keep walking. So you really want to take the time to make sure that like, oh, this bear is like more interested than normal in me and he's coming over to see what's going on or she with all these bare rules, a mother and a Cubs kind of throw shit out the window because it is, it's totally unpredictable how she's going to behave. And your first priority just needs to be creating distance between yourself and the Cubs because if she feels you are a threat to the Cubs, that's when you're fucked. So like I I accidentally walked between a sow and cubs one time. We were coming out of a block doing layout on the north end of Vancouver Island. I didn't even really notice it. There was like a couple of cubs playing on one section and there was like a mother over in another section. They didn't hear us coming. And as we're walking out, I then find myself in between the cubs and the mother. There were two other people walking behind me. So as soon as I realized what was going on, I motioned, and this was a black bear, just this is not a grizzly. As soon as I noticed what was going on, I motioned to the other two people to catch up as quickly as possible. I stopped because I didn't want to get out of the way and have them at risk. So I stopped, I let the other two people pass me and then I kept eye contact. That's the other thing, turning and running with a black bear is a really bad idea. I kept eye contact. One thing to note about a black bear, it's a predator, but it's not an apex predator, all right? Grizzly bears and wolves are apex predators. There's nothing else that hunts them. So they have a different psychology when it comes to, like everything to them is prey, not everything to a black bear is prey. So so making eye contact and standing your ground tends to be a really good tactic when it comes to bears, black bears. So I let the other two people pass me. I maintained eye contact with the, with the mother I talked to her in like a, like a firm voice. I'm like, Hey, ma bear. Hey, ma bear. Backing out, backing out ma bear. Just like that. And slowly backed away. She was like kind of thrashing and clacking teeth and kind of like making noise, but didn't really do too much. And then as soon as we created enough distance between ourselves and the cubs, she kind of covered some distance of her own, got over to the cubs and they kind of like went away. Um, I've had other instances where as soon as you get close to a bear they'll run up a tree and if that's the case you keep your eye on the bear and you kind of walk yourself the direction that you're going you leave the bear up in the tree and just make your way out. Um it's a defense mechanism for them. I've had it happen a few times. Um so anyways, you stand a very good chance, like almost a certainty of scaring a bear away if you have a rifle hold it up in the air. If you've got your bow, hold it up in the air because they're just going to see your outline. So the idea is the bigger you are and the louder you are, the less likelihood the bear is going to think it can win a fight. And as long as it doesn't think it's going to win a fight, it's just going to go the opposite direction. So that's a general kind of rundown for black bears. Do everything that you can to not draw attention to yourself until it's too late But then once you are in some type of conflict or a face-to-face encounter, take the dominant role because that, and and that's just going from experience. I've literally done that at least 20 times and it's worked every single time. So I don't know what some fucking bear books say, but that's what's worked for me. Now let's get into grizzlies. The first thing I want to say is the bottom line. This is a shit situation. There is no right answer when it comes to grizzly bears. I've listened to so many podcasts now of like grizzly bear attack survivors and like some played dead and some fought for their life and some did this, that I'm kind of like, I almost feel a little irresponsible here because I don't know what to tell you because it seems like the people who are able to keep their head in these situations do best. Ultimately, you want to do whatever you can to avoid any encounter whatsoever with the, with the grizzly bear. Sometimes that's not possible though. And sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation where there's nothing that you can do. I think some best practices uh, that can be decided upon, or if it's, a, it's, if it's a mother with cubs, there seems to be pretty strong consensus that playing dead is a reliable option. The reason is she's not in a predatory frame of mind. She's not trying to kill you for whatever reason. She's trying to protect her cubs. So if she no longer views you as a threat, she may leave. Now, a couple notes would be to protect vital organs. I would recommend curling up in a fetal position, trying to use your elbows to protect kind of your torso organs and then lacing your fingers around the back of your neck so you can protect that part of your spinal column. And potentially that could be a a good strategy. Now, there also seems to be fairly strong consensus that if it's a predatory bear and it is kind of taking the initiative to attack you, you got to do everything within your power to protect yourself. So playing dead at that point is not a viable strategy. Um, I know it's a little ridiculous, but I always have a knife somewhere within arm's reach when I'm out in the woods. And it's normally, it's not like some big, crazy buoy knife or something. It's just like a like an everyday carry or something, but at least it's, it's something. Anytime I've kind of felt like I've been in a situation where there might be an, an encounter, I made sure I knew that where that was and I could get quick access to it. When it comes to bear spray, you need to carry bear spray in some place where it's going to be consistently and reliably available to you i think anything attached to your bino harness is probably ideal if that's impossible i could see the belt of your backpack being another good place and it's probably a good idea to practice getting your bear spray out a couple times i took a fhf i borrowed an fhf uh, bear spray holster from my friend this year on an elk hunt and it was super tight. And so I had to practice quite a few times pulling that out of there until I felt comfortable enough that, okay, if the shit hits the fan, I now know the kind of movement pattern I need to be able to get this thing out of here quickly. And part of it was just breaking in the fabric so that it was more accessible and more more pliable. That's really all I have to say on, on grizzly bears. Know your area, know what to worry about. Always keep food away from camp we're going to get into game processing and, and bear concerns later on in the podcast, but always keep the food you're going to eat away from camp. Stay aware, never listen to music or podcasts or anything like that. When you're alone in the woods, you want to be able to hear things, you sticks cracking, all that kind of stuff. So always be aware with all of your senses when you're in the woods and try and steer away from any conflict. And then if you can't, try some of the things that I that I mentioned previously and make sure you have some type of deterrent and, and and that it's readily accessible. All right, up next, we have first aid kits. So I'm gonna take my little first aid kit and just kind of do a bit of a bag dump with it. I will say I keep a larger first aid kit with some bigger splints and, and more stuff under the seat in my truck and it's always there. That way, if I'm out with my daughter and something happens, or if I was back in the woods and something serious happened, I know I have a second stage kit as soon as I get to the truck. But this is the kit that I carry with me in the woods all the time. Um, lots of different kinds of band-aids, antiseptic cream. I keep some aids, a lighter. I keep a little Pelican flashlight, a whistle. Now, the thing about the whistle, when we used to work in the woods, one of the safety mandates was that you had to have a whistle that was in within reach of your mouth without the use of your hands. So we tended to clip it onto our shoulder. The reason for that was if you were rendered um, incapable of movement, say you took a spill and you clipped your spine and you, you couldn't move your hands, at least you could move your neck and kind of blow on the whistle. So I will admit Having this inside the first Kate first aid kit is not ideal. However, with us being hunters and wanting to stay quiet and all the rest of it, I don't like the idea of this like whistle dangling off of my kit either. So this is where I keep it. And I realize I am I'm it's not an ideal situation. Um I carry these like tensor bandage gauze combos, and it's basically like a gauze pad attached to a tensor bandage, really good for like deep cuts and stuff. Uh, A triangle bandage in case you need to make a sling. It's also just handy to have a giant piece of fabric. You could rip this into swatches for tourniquets. You could do any number of things with this that would be helpful and it doesn't take up much room. I carry a bunch of alcohol swabs. I carry a glow stick. Got a bunch of safety pins in here, a metal finger splint, a couple of different kinds of tape and some gloves. And that's basically all I bring the elements that I'm going to be adding to this kit. Um, just from a few things I've been paying attention to lately, I'm a little underprepared a tourniquet, like a legitimate tourniquet with that, like a tourniquet kit, not just a piece of fabric, like something that's got that stick on it that you can like twist and like lock it down that. I'm going to add a clotting sponge. So it's a piece of gauze that actually has a liquid in it that clots blood faster. So if I got like a big tear or puncture somewhere, I could put that on the wound and it would have a greater likelihood of of actually clotting the blood. Pepto-bismol pills are normally in there. I just was moving some stuff around and they didn't get put back. Um, Super handy. And also some antibiotics, I just go to my doctor and once a year, I throw them out every year and I say, listen, I want 20 amoxicillin in and I just tell them like, listen, I put these in my kit and that way, if something happens, if I eat something bad, if I drink something bad, and it's to the point where like, I don't think it's going to solve itself, having antibiotics can be a really big deal in the back country. So um, that's something else that I'll put in that kit. Up next, I want to talk about communication. In my opinion, an in-reach is a must for any hunter. Even if you're in good cell phone area, you could like drop into a little bowl or go around a, a, a berm and like lose cell phone reception. So an in-reach is a device that allows you to text via satellite. So from anywhere on the planet, you can have a text-based communication with somebody anywhere else on the planet. You can also text each other. So if two guys have in-reaches and you're out of cell service, I've done this multiple times, you can still carry on a conversation. Super helpful for partner hunting when you split up and go your own ways. One individual did ask me about a a satellite phone and he said he did the research and the costs came out somewhat similar. I used a sat phone for years for work and it was like a buck a minute or something. So I'm not really sure where he got his data. Maybe sat phones have gotten insanely cheaper, but when I worked, It was a thousand bucks to buy a sat phone and it was a buck a minute to talk on it. So we, we didn't use them very much. We always had one when we were doing remote work, but they were like for check-ins and shit. I would, I would take a in-reach 10 times a day over a sat phone. So much more reliable. Getting a sat phone to actually work reliably is such a pain in the ass. Then you don't have good audio quality. You can only, you have got to walk certain places. Like it's just shit. So when you just are looking for like check-ins and safety protocols, there is no competition. Just get an in-reach. It's like 350 bucks, put yourself on the low plan and then not in hunting season, you can go down to a different plan and it's like the vacation plan or whatever and it's like two bucks a month. And then when it's hunting season again, you just kick it back on. Now, let's talk about what apps you should have. All of my recommendations are gonna boil down off of you basically using the phone as your base GPS device. If you're going to run a Garmin, some of this stuff doesn't really apply to you. I don't really know why anyone would run a Garmin anymore. It's better weather protected and it's a little sturdier than a phone. So I understand that. I can understand bringing a Garmin as a backup. However, with the inReach, that also doesn't really make any sense anymore. So in my my recommendation of the perfect combo is like a good smartphone and an inReach. If you're going to run a Garmin, that would be a different set of circumstances. So apps that you should have, first one is EarthMate. EarthMate is the app that pairs the inReach with your phone. Something to note, when you are looking at maps on your phone and when you are putting points on the inReach through EarthMate on your phone, those do not get stored locally on the inReach. Those are on your phone. So if you just go to look on the map on the inReach, none of that stuff is there. So one of the safety protocols I do I always download maps directly to the inReach. So I have some type of base map that I can look at. And then I always take a point at particular intervals directly on the inReach, not on my phone. So I'll take one where I park the truck. I'll take one where I camp. I'll take one a couple of times a day. Then if worst case scenario, my phone dies, I can use the screen, the map, and the GPS that's actually in the inReach as my secondary backup GPS device. So that, that should be noted because I've gotten caught out more than once when I thought the points I was taking on my phone were on my inReach, my phone died. I opened up the inReach and it's just blank. There's no map, there's no points. You can still you know text with it and do other things with it, but you you can't use it as a, you can use it to get a GPS point. So if you had a paper map, you could still locate yourself on that map, but you cannot use it as a form of navigation to get back to a known um location like a waypoint like you could if you pre-populated it with the points at key intervals throughout the day so just keep that in mind onx or base map those are my onx is my navigation tool of choice it costs a little bit more I'm sure there are other options available in four years of using onx i have never once had any kind of failure I'm willing to pay for reliability so I stick with onx Plus they kind of get you after a couple of years. I've hunted in so many different states and taken so many waypoints on my Onyx. Like there are thousands of waypoints and they're all already in there. So when I go back to areas where I've been before, I just open up my phone and like, there's my points. I know where the water sources are. So it's like, once you get integrated into one system, it's also kind of difficult. There's you know, in business we would call it switching costs. There's almost, it would be a penalty for me to go to another platform at this point. So that's another reason and probably the more practical reason of why I stick with Onyx. Uh Hunt Buddy and iHunt, to be honest with you, I don't really use them that much. I do keep Hunt Buddy on my phone just for quick access to the regs, but I don't. I, I, I don't really have a lot of familiarity with those programs, so I can't talk about them for the guys in BC. So if you have one that you like, keep using it. Google Earth. Google Earth lots of times has a different version of satellite imagery than some of the other mapping platforms. However, the caching on Google Earth is shit. I used to use it, whereas like, as long as I went in and zoomed in on all my areas of interest and got that fresh data before I went into the woods... Once I lost cell service, I could still access that. However, 50% of the time, if the app reboots itself, that cache data is gone. So it is completely unreliable for use outside of cell service. However, for cell service, when you're like driving places and looking for directions or trying to find like when you do have cell service and you're looking for like a good route, the 3D capability on your phone is outstanding. OnX and Go Hunt and some other, players are finally catching up to that, but there's no reason not to have it on your phone. It's a free app and it just gives you a different look. So I recommend that. I'll also give a nod to FatMap. There's some things I don't like about it and there's some things I do like about it, but download all of these. Gaia is, is immensely popular. Gaia GPS with a lot of people. I haven't played with a lot, but that's another one. I would download all of these Play with them and see which one you find most intuitive. The final app I would recommend is Avenza Maps. Avenza Maps is the application that you need in order to view most purchased PDFs. So if you go like the backcountry roadmap guide or any of these like pay per map topo services, normally you actually buy them through the store on Avenza Maps and then you can view them on your your device through that application. And it's basically geo-referenced PDF maps. Um, I, I use this all the time, especially like trying to find old hiking trails and stuff. Like so, they'll have some weird maps on there that have hiking trails that aren't really mapped anywhere else. So I highly recommend Avenza Maps. Now let's just start talking about maps in general, because I do think as far as a safety protocol for, solo hunting. I can't oversell the need for like orienteering and land nav enough. And I already talked about this on an earlier podcast, so I'm not going to beat it to death, but you have to have basic understanding of mapping and how to use a compass and all that kind of stuff. It's too in-depth for me to get into. As far as how to look at maps and read maps, I haven't personally taken the course myself yet, but I would recommend the e-scouting masterclass that if you look up Treeline Pursuits, Mark Livesey on Instagram, he has a masterclass that he's put together. I think it's called the Treeline Academy e-scouting masterclass. I would recommend taking that because I've listened to enough podcasts with them. I've had a couple conversations with them myself that if you took that whole course, you would have a pretty good idea how to use maps, how to what apps to look at and that kind of stuff. So that might be just an easier fix. For a lot of you, I still think there's a place for like a weekend land nav course. If you really have, if you didn't grow up in Boy Scouts and take, get your orienteering badge and do all that kind of shit, and you don't know how to triangulate and take bearings, I think you should take a weekend course because it's the only thing that's going to give you that real world paper map compass ability to find out where you're going and and how to get back. Something else I would recommend is start small with like trail maps. And then look at the map while you're walking on the trail and get comfortable how the integration of the reality in the map fits and what the scales are like. And then I would take it one step further and I would try and take a shortcut on the trail between two points within the trail and bushwhack because it's pretty safe because you're within, you're within like, a, like a manicured area. But it's going to give you that ability to say like, okay, I know I'm here. I know that other location is over here at Bearing X. I'm now gonna take a bearing and I'm gonna walk in that direction, and hopefully, I'm gonna get where I'm going. And it's gonna be kind of a safe way to experiment with navigating when there's no trails or markings of any kind. So I think that's a neat little shortcut um, in order to kind of give you that experience while doing so in a safe way. That leads me to general walking in the woods. Somebody asked me to talk about this in detail this is something I almost like want to do like a little mini course on because it took me a while to learn how to do this. And I don't really know, nothing but experience is really going to teach you this unless you have like a bit of a mentor, but walking in the mountains takes conscious effort. Like you need to think cognitively and logically about where you're placing your feet. The analogy I like to draw is like a rock climber. Like a rock climber doesn't put his foot flat on the wall he's climbing and apply a bunch of pressure and hope that friction is going to keep his foot there while he pushes off. He looks for very specific kind of angles and pressure points about how he can dig his toes or his heel or his side foot into certain crevices and apply pressure in a very tactical, precise way in order to ensure a greater degree of like contact and confidence that his foot isn't gonna go anywhere. So it seems like I'm overselling this, but when you're walking through the woods, I'm thinking in a similar way. So when I'm walking a side hill, like I'm digging in the side of my foot and I'm angling my ankle outwards. And I'm trying to apply as much pressure to as small a surface area as possible. And then use that small surface area to keep me sure footed. Yeah, I don't even know how much more I can say about it than that, but like just try and think more cognitively about how you're walking through the woods. When it's flat and there's not a lot going on, it doesn't really matter. But when you start getting up into some of the more technical terrain, especially here in BC, there is an art to walking through the woods. Like I remember a really good friend of mine, Ron, he's a black belt in jujitsu now. He was a brown belt at the time. He was one of the guys who taught me a lot of jujitsu and I took him on a scouting trip one time. And like we sat down for lunch and he was just like, you have a black belt in walking through the woods. And I was kind of like, What the fuck do you mean? And he's like, I'm dying. Like, I'm expending way more energy. I'm falling. I don't know where I'm going. I'm tired. I'm sore. And he's like, It's like you're just gliding through here without even thinking about it. And I'd never really thought about it before then. But like, walking through the mountains is a skill set that takes years to master. And you expend so much more energy than required when you first start doing it. Um, So just think a little bit more about that and try and be a little bit more intentional with the way you walk through the woods. A, you're going to save some energy, but B, I think it's also safer. The things that are going to take you out in the woods are not the romantic things like, like grizzlies and avalanches for the most part. It's the little shit. It's like running out of food, running out of water, rolling your ankle, like dumb shit. I'm way more Concerned about the dumb shit than I am about the big sexy shit because it's the dumb shit that will fuck you up every time. Another note about walking around the woods, especially when you're by yourself, is the concept of getting cliffed out or bluffed out. And this actually pertains to more situations than just cliffs and bluffs. You are not always capable of getting back down something that you are capable of getting up. And I know that might seem irrational. Like if I got up here, I can get down. Not the case. There are lots of situations where you can scramble up a face, but there's no way just because of gravity and angles and whatnot that you could get back down the same face. So the takeaway here is look at your path with a critical eye and ask yourself, can I get back down this thing if there's no way out further ahead? And when you're by yourself, if the answer is no, stop, go find another way. When you have a partner, you can do things like split up. You can go ahead. He can stay behind that way. If you can't get back down, he can help you. Like you have other options, but when you're by yourself, if you're concerned about getting cliffed out, do not go that way. Cause it can be, it, you could wind up in a very bad situation. Um, normally these things happen is like an escalation of commitment. Like you start up a bit of a Canyon or a choke point. And it just keeps getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And by the time you run into that one section that's going to cliff you out, you start contemplating going back down this whole fucking thing and like finding another way around. And you're like, ah, I can't be bothered to do that. I'm just going to keep pushing on. That's the moment you need to be aware of. That's the moment of complacency. That's the moment when you're not objectively assessing the probability and risk of success and failure. So sometimes the right answer requires more work and having the kind of the clarity of mind and, and the mental acuity to kind of like notice those situations is key to saying st- staying safe by yourself when you're in the mountains. So just try and be honest with yourself. If I can't get back down, I should just go find another route. You're better off in the long run. Let's talk about proper gear. Do your research about where you're going in the time of year. Look at advanced weather reports. Google Spot X weather. It's the best online weather app as far as I'm concerned. It compiles data from like actual weather stations. And so you're getting like real-time data from that area instead of like some like conglomerate of systems that like puts it all together and like kind of doctors it for you. You're getting the actual raw data. Look at the weather outlook. And, and And the earlier you are in your career of this stuff, Pack more conservatively. You are better off having too much gear than not enough gear. You can always leave some stuff and come back and get it later. If you get into the hike, drop some stuff off, hide it behind a tree. I've done that lots. Leave some extra clothes in a garbage bag, just off to the side, go on about your business for the next day or two. And then on the way back to the truck, you just go pick it up. Totally an option. So the longer I do this, the less I take, but I've also had it bite me in the ass because I didn't, I I let my complacency or my confidence get away with me. And I'm like, ah, it'll be fine. I don't need rain gear. And then it pisses on you all day and you're soaking wet for the entire day because there's nothing you can do about this. So the perfect situation is a clear idea of what the weather is going to be and exactly what you need. Failing that, if there's a lack of confidence in the weather report, overpack as opposed to underpack if you're still younger and you don't have a whole lot of cash, keep an eye out for sales on mountaineering sites like REI, MEC, The Last Hunt in Canada is like an outlet site because a lot of this gear is actually better than what's made by the hunting companies. It doesn't come in some cool camo, but as far as it's like ability to keep you warm and dry and safe, mountaineering companies have been doing this way longer than any of the hunting companies. So if you're trying to save some cash, I highly recommend that. When you do get to the point where you have extra cash, I highly recommend you buy very premium gear. Not only is it better, the retention of value is better. I'm selling a bunch of used stuff right now on Facebook Marketplace and Instagram, and it's like all in really good condition because I've taken care of it. Most of it is outerwear. I don't tend to sell like base layers because you beat the shit out of them, but I'm getting reliably 70% of what I paid for it. So if I paid you know, 400 bucks for a pair of rain pants, I'm getting like 275 to 300 bucks, which is like a pretty good return on your investment, especially considering you've used them for a couple of years. One last note about gear would be Hunter Orange requirements in relation to safety. Somebody asked me about this. My response is do whatever is legally required. He said, well, it's not legally required where I am, but I'm worried the, about the hunters. They're kind of sketchy. And I was like, I gave my head a shake. I'm like, I well, and don't hunt there because that's just fucking crazy. If you have to worry that somebody's going to shoot you, you're in the wrong place. I don't believe orange stops anybody from shooting anybody. But if I'm in an area that calls for it, I wear it. And if I'm in an area that doesn't call for it, I don't wear it. But look at the regulations because it will tell you exactly how many square inches of orange you need to have. Lots of times if you wear a vest and then put on a backpack and cover up the back of the vest, you are not within compliance of the regulations. So you might need to have an, a separate patch that you put on your backpack. Maybe getting wearing a hat would also put you over the top. Sometimes the regulations will say it needs to be in two different pieces or you have to wear a hat. Anyways, read the regulations, be in compliance with those regulations. Water purification, I use a SteriPen 100% of the time. It's not ideal for standing water because it doesn't get out chunks of stuff and it doesn't really help with the color. Um, I don't really care. It's like the most versatile, most dependable system. So it's what I use. There are good filtering systems out there. However, you know, temperature affects filtering systems, the amount of like algae and debris affects filtering systems. I just find them to be too vulnerable. So I don't tend to use them. But if you're interested in that, do more research. Also, I always carry a backup purification system. So I carry my SteriPen. I also carry a product called AquaTabs. Both of those will purify water. Uh, the, the the AquaTabs in like less than half an hour and the SteriPen in less than a minute. So no matter what happens, I have a way of purifying water. Now let's get into the actual you know, trips, like what you have to do to be safe, not just in the woods, but when you're going to go in there for an extended period of time. I would recommend planning, if you haven't done this before, a small one to two night off trail trip. So you could get to a trailhead. You could go a couple miles in the trailhead, but then plan it. So you're going to get off the trail, go on the map, pick a small lake that has no trails going to it and make it an exercise to find your way to that lake with just your compass. But make sure it's like only one night or two nights. It's going to allow you to, again, test and experiment with what you think is going to work and what's actually going to work. Use it as an opportunity to learn about backpacking food. I start at a minimum of 3,000 calories per day. If I'm going in lighter and shorter, I'd love to be all the way up near 4,000. In the real world, I probably end up somewhere between 3,300 and 3,400 on most trips. So that's a good starting point for like your average 200 pound male. Also, Test several brands of food. I know this isn't really a safety tip, but for me personally, I find Peak Refuel is my favorite across the board. All the other brands have one or two that I like, but Peak Refuel, almost all of the recipes I like, and it has a very high protein content, which is hard to find in backpacking meals. And pre-test your gear. Blow up sleeping pads, get in sleeping bags, anything that's going to carry stuff, test it, look at it, wear it, take it on a hike, break in your boots. Like the last thing in the world you want is to get to the trailhead with something that is untested. Okay. So let's say we're going to do this little two-day trip. Let's talk about a safety plan. Like what are some things that we should keep in consideration? Step one, find a competent point person. And this may be difficult for some of you. If you're in BC, you're always welcome to tr- give me a call. I might not be available, but if you want to use me as a point person I'm, and, I, and, I, and I have the ability, I'm happy to do it. Um, you need someone who understands the backcountry because you're going to be giving them directions and information that like a normal layperson, person is not going to make any sense to them. And in a pinch point when you're lost and they're supposed to be calling search and rescue, they're not going to know how to interpolate the data appropriately. You need to provide them a plan with locations and times when you're going in, when you're coming out and potential paths. So I will actually, I build all mine in Google earth. So I will literally draw the paths. I think I'm going to go here. This is my game plan. I think I'm going to go here. If I don't find anything there, I'm going to go over here. On the last day if finally, if that's, if they both of those are empty, I'm going in here. And then I think probably I'm going to camp over here in days one and two, and probably over here in days of three, three and four. And I hand bomb some notes on it. I draw a bunch of lines. I put some waypoints, and I agree to touch base in the evening and morning. So I typically do 6 p.m. every night, 8 a.m. every morning. I've never slept past 8 a.m. on a hunt and I've never gone to bed before 6 p.m. I operate on a 12 hour delay. If, if I miss a check-in and you don't hear from me in the next 12 hours, then the safety plan kicks into action. The reason that I want 12 hours is that it's possible batteries could have died or a catastrophic failure could have occurred to the in-reach. If that occurs, I turn around and leave immediately. And I try to get back to the truck before that 12-hour window is up so I can call the person so they don't call search and rescue. The, the, the likelihood of that happening is very low. Also, the likelihood of something happening to me, I'm either going to fall off a cliff and be dead immediately, or I'm going to like break my arm and not be able to move. And if that's the case, me sitting there for an extra 12 hours one way or another isn't going to be long enough to increase the risk of death appreciably. So that's my system depending on where you are. If you had solid cell service, I would say like a two-hour window is enough because if they can't get in touch with you in two hours and you have solid cell service, and well, you still could have a catastrophic issue where the phone died. So I like having a bit of a buffer in there just so search and rescue doesn't get called by accident. And because I'm more experienced, I tend to go more towards the, the, the kind of riskier end of the spectrum. If you have less experience, I would stay towards the more conservative end of the spectrum. You need to list all the important phone numbers for the area. There's going to be local police, that region search and rescue, and also local helicopter services. Here's a bit of a pro tip for you. Hiring a helicopter to come pick you up on the side of a mountain is exponentially cheaper than what it costs to run a search and rescue. So if, you know, where I'm going is is close to Stewart, British Columbia on this goat hunt. I already have the contact phone numbers in my phone and my InReach for the local heli service. So if I got to a point where I was way back in there and I was hurt and I needed out, you can legally hire a helicopter for whatever their hourly rates are. I would literally just message the helicopter company through my in-reach and say, please come pick me up at these coordinates when you're available. They would come get me. You wouldn't have incurred search and rescue costs. Your name's not going to end up in the paper and you're still going to get out in a completely safe manner and there's nothing wrong with that. So that's an option, not always an option, but if it turns out the circumstances permit, that's a good option. Um, Also, you need to think about what it takes for a helicopter to land. So I try and think of the wingspan of a helicopter, like the size of the blade, and then I try and go five or 10 meters on the other side of that. Now, they may need a long line to come in and get you with like legit search and rescue if you're in some hell hole. But if you're like up in the Alpine or down in a riverbed or somewhere where a helicopter can land, A, it's way cheaper, B, it's way safer. And if you're still mobile, clear it out appropriately. Like get rid of anything that's going to fly when like the severe wind of the turbines comes in or... Um, Break off some branches if you need to, to create that landing space, but actually think about it and try and get to a location where you could get picked up. In forestry, lots of times we would get dropped off in the morning by a helicopter at a helipad. And then I would like mark a spot on a map and say, I'm going to be over in this area by 5.30 PM. It was my responsibility by 5:30 p.m. to have found or built a spot where that helicopter could land and then come pick me up. So it's something I have a bit of experience with, but just think about that. And so just a quick recap of that. They need to know where you're going, when you're coming back, where you're going to be when you're in there, when to expect to hear from you, how long to wait after not hearing from you to kick the plan into action, and then who they're supposed to call when that plan gets kicked into action. The reason I put the local police number in there is that different areas have different laws and some places won't kick off a search and rescue until a person has been missing for X amount of time. And sometimes you need the police to file a missing persons report to allow search and rescue to kick off. So there's certain areas where you're actually better off calling the local police first This is something you're going to have to answer for your own region or the own area where you're going to hunt, but it's something that you should be looking into beforehand if you're going by yourself. Couple small notes to close off. Game processing solo. Try and drag your kill to an area where you have as much visibility as possible. You don't want to be stuck in some thick aspens or in dark timber, especially if there's lots of underbrush. Now, if it's like an elk, you don't have a whole lot of choice, but if it's anything smaller than elk, drag it to somewhere that, it, that at the lift of a head, you can do like a quick scan and make sure you're going to be okay. That's step number one. Step number two, once you have the game processed, you want to hang it in an area that is visible from someplace far away that you could glass because bears might come during the night or in the morning. So the idea is if you can't get all the meat out in one trip, you want to be able to see the meat as soon as possible when you're walking back in. Like you want to be able to glass up the meat ideally three, four, five, six hundred 600 yards away. So think about that when you're there. Like, and sometimes you might have to carry that meat two, 300 yards from the kill site to get it to somewhere that, that gives you that option. But that way, when you're on your way back in the next morning, You can actually glass up your meat well before you get there. And I I will do things like leave a t-shirt hung in a certain way, or I leave all my game bags pointing in the same direction. That way it's super easy for me to see at a quick glance, oh, somebody has been fucking with my shit. Now it could be coyotes. It could be something you don't need to worry about. If you have a high caliber rifle, even if it's a bear, you could still go in and check it, but then at least you know there's a possibility I'm going to run into something here. So that's my, that's my tip for game processing solo. Best case scenario, get it all out in one trip at night. You're fucking gone and you don't have to go back in. However, that's not always possible. One other quick note, if you're by yourself and the situation permits, start a fire while you're processing the meat. It's going to reduce the likelihood of an animal wanting to come over I toyed around with the idea of telling people to make noise to like scare animals off. The more I thought about it, in my opinion, you're better off being quiet because you're going to hear them coming, hopefully in enough time to prepare yourself. Whereas if you put on a, a, if you turn your music on, on your phone or something, it might be just loud enough to get them curious to come over. And then you're not even going to hear the animal coming into your kill location. So no music, no noise, but but a cranker of a fire if you've got, if the conditions permit. Trying to sleep solo in the mountains. Uh, I carry sleeping pills with me. I never use them, but I have them. Um, so that's one thing. This is something that like, I always was worried that I was going to have trouble falling asleep in the mountains. I just don't. Every now and then I'll think I hear a little something or I'll get worried about a little something And normally I can just talk myself off the ledge. I'll be like, listen, man, it's just something walking around. It's not a big deal. Like you're hearing a raccoon or like something that's just not worth worrying about. And your, your mind starts to make a bigger deal out of it. One thing that helps is hunting your ass off. Because if you're dead tired, you're going to fall asleep fast. And the quicker you can get to sleep, the better. However, I do know people who religiously have to take sleeping pills. They get really spooked when they're, when they're out there. I don't have a whole lot of tips other than it does get better. The longer you do it, the less worried you will be. I think it's kind of interesting because I get more scared sleeping in the back of my truck at like a turnout on the highway because I'm more scared of people than I am of animals. So it doesn't really concern me that much anymore. Never really did. Um, but yeah, sleeping pills, and just take some time, get used to it. And, you know, beat yourself to death through the day and you'll just pass out too quick to worry about it. All right, last point I wanna cover. So general mindset, like how do you survive back there for a while and not go crazy? Or, or how do you not let being alone get to you? I'm gonna reiterate something I said on an earlier podcast. This is not a struggle for me. I like this. I like being by myself. And so if it's that hard for you to do, it might not be for you. However, if you want the challenge anyways, here's some like general tips. Remind yourself that you're, you're going to come up with excuses to leave and that's all they are. If you still have food, water, and four limbs that work, you don't have to leave. Um, I never did this before but I have started taking podcasts. I got particularly lonely on a hunt recently and I didn't do it too much because I don't like kind of giving into that kind of stuff. But during lunches and some snacks and just before bed, I'd let myself listen to a podcast and just hearing people's voices who I heard on a regular basis would like calm me down. That might be another tip for getting to sleep at night. Uh, Putting one earbud in, And listening to a podcast before bed and even just letting it play and and going to sleep with the earbud in might help relax you a little bit. But I found we come to, you know, and it's weird now that I have a podcast, but I kind of feel like I'm friends with podcast hosts. Because I spend so much time listening to them. So when you play them in your, in the back country, it kind of feels like you're with your friends on top of that, I would engage in other activities you find psychologically challenging and then forcing yourself to do those activities. Because all this really is, is another example of where you need to exercise discipline to overcome a natural inclination. There's tons of shit in my life I don't want to do. And I, I decide on a path, path of behavior. I execute it with discipline and I do the shit I don't want to do. It's the same thing with solo hunting. There's no like motivational speech that's going to keep your ass out in the mountains. It all comes down to discipline, not giving in. Um, Like I said earlier, I'm going to talk more extensively about this. I have this idea for a semi-live podcast I'm going to do while I'm away where I'm hoping to catch more of my thoughts on these topics real time when I'm alone out in the mountains. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it's this idea I have and hopefully it works and I'll be able to share that podcast when I get back and there will probably be more tactics and insights in that than I was just able to give now. But that's a, you know, a couple things, you know, to simmer on anyways. All right. That's it for episode 13. As always questions, comments, concerns, drop a note below in the comments, hit me up. j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. YouTube, mindful underscore Hunter. Thanks for tuning in.